accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government. Helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. Just coming off, getting quoted in Gawker as saying that the U.S. government is unfit to exist. Oh, yes, the golden stallion. The master of the triple black arts, the man of tomorrow, here for you for another episode of Sovereign Tech. And boy, not just getting mentioned in Gawker. There was uh, uh, quite a quite a hit piece about Bitcoin in Gawker this past week. Of course, there's a link in the show notes in the appendix for you to read that. It's a bunch of BS, but hey, the Golden Stallion got quoted. And if there's any quote that you can get to be quoted for saying the U.S. government is unfit to exist is a pretty good quote to have. Uh, but also, there was a great write-up uh, by Richard Masta in uh, on his Liberty.me blog about uh, about Keenvention, which was a great time this year. And of course, I released all the uh, you know all the audio that the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I were involved in on that. Uh, but it was a great write-up, and it was really interesting because. Richard said is like, you know, he made uh, quite a few good points about uh, during our our tech panel and Bitcoin panel. But he had mentioned specifically about how, you know, the Golden Stallion said, you know, it's it's good to be healthy, you know, as much as anyone can be. It's important for me to get that out there that that I mean, everybody's different. Everybody has, you know, whatever various conditions they are under to where, you know, what levels of health they can get to. But uh, but it is something I push for is for people to be as healthy as is possible for them to get to. And, uh, and it was great because he said, he says, and I have to, he's, this is Richard Massa talking and I have to say for a, for an anarchist that runs a technology, uh, a tech, you know, that runs a tech show, he's rather buff. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Uh, so anyway, but you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here. I want to talk about actually real quick. I'd be remiss if I did not make mention of this, but, um, but this week, uh, we lost, uh, this is the first week of December, 2014, but, uh, we lost, we being, uh, you know, the, the anarchist movement, the Liberty oriented movement, the Liberty movement, whatever we lost one of the best, uh, in my opinion, one of the absolute best. And that is Nathaniel Brandon. Uh, he died at the age of 84, I believe. And Nathaniel Brandon is well known for his relations with Ayn Rand, but really, he took a lot of uh, a lot of what she had to say and, and took it to the next level. Granted, he never became an anarchist. He never went all the way. But his works uh, like Six Pillars of Self-Esteem and others, his work, his works, in, you know, in psychology and, and self-help, et cetera, whatever you know, label you want to put that under, are second to none, uh, in my opinion, in the world. And they are phenomenal uh, books. I have gone through his multi-week sentence stem courses. Uh, I have, I'm just a huge fan of what Nathaniel Brandon did. And he really, he really did. He did so much 
uh, to bring a lot of, you know, uh, like I mentioned in, in the uh, the episode of, you know, 99B, where I was in 2099, <laughs> you know, and I mentioned that uh, freedom is in the heart. And I think Nathaniel Brandon is very key to, you know, me reaching that conclusion. And I think to that being a fact and it being possible to reach through his works. So if you've never read Nathaniel Brandon, uh, there is no no time like right now. Uh, you know, to get on that. Uh, and it is truly a loss, uh, you know, for him to, to no longer, you know, be, uh, be a part of the movement, unfortunately, uh, you know, due to him passing on. So, uh, Nathaniel Brandon here, you know, Sovereign Tech raises a, a glass of Earl Grey tea to you, sir, because you were incredible. Uh, but let's get into the random access, shall we? Uh, no need, you know, I mean, he, the guy lived a good life, no doubt. So, <laughs> you know, 84 is pretty good. Um, all right. We've, we've got, uh, the random access here, lot to cover a whole lot to cover in this episode. Um, and I, I will, well, never mind. Let, let's just get into the, into the random access here. Uh, this is pretty interesting. The university of Texas has created a full duplex switch called a circulator. And what, do, what does this do? Well, it can double wireless speeds by filtering the send receive signal. And, and all this is, is again, it's a filter that pretty much, you know, the send receive signal is more or less coming in on the same band. And this filter allows it to, you know, allows for a separation of the send and receive signals, like I mentioned. And because of that, that actually increases the speed with which the device that you're using, the wireless device that you're using can interact with the data because it is separated. Uh, it is not coming in, you know, on one shot. Uh, so very clever, very simple implementation. Uh, it is really true that, you know, the simplest way is generally the most efficient and best. And this is definitely the case where a simple hardware switch is just going, you know, has the potential. A very easy implemented hardware switch has the potential to double uh, everything that we already do without having to go to, you know, a new a new wireless, uh, you know, signal uh, band type. Uh, so very, very clever. Nice move. <laughs> so the circulator, that's something to uh, to look out for. Uh, speaking of a little more hardware, this news came out this week. Uh, the next Google Glass will be powered by Intel. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it's funny, OK, because Google Glass uh, it was, you know, a lot of people have been saying, oh, look, it's doomed. In fact, I think we might have mentioned last week how uh, some of the what they called kind of the glass academies were glastronauts, uh, <laughs> which is a lot nicer than calling them glass holes, uh, could go to to, you know, learn more about glass and experiment more with Google Glass. So a lot a lot of people have been proposing the death knell of Google Glass. But I think a lot of people now are just expecting that it is going to end up getting used for professional use, which is, you know, I mean, I, I think that's fair and I don't think that that's a terrible place for its use. I just don't know that it should be. I don't want it all over the place, uh, you know, and actually, you know, Mike Elgin on Tech News Today, um, he he made a great point that he thinks if Google just removed the camera from Google Glass, that nobody would have a problem with it and that it would get widely adopted on the consumer level uh, at no time. And I thought that was an ingenious observation, and I totally agree. Hell, I might have even I might even wear it if it didn't have that camera. 
Uh, and but that's the thing is, is that Google's never going to do that because I think that defeats the whole point of why they want Google Glass out there in the first place. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit more during our main story. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a clever observation and maybe they will implement it, but, but I doubt it. I think the whole point of having, you know, people wearing these things all over the place is not so that you have an easy notification system or whatever, uh, but so that there's a camera facing everywhere all the time. And you can tell that really by the fact uh, of a lot of the, you know, cause they tried, they were, Google was spending a lot of money about a year and a half ago on making Google glass sexy. And they did that by doing a lot of modeling shoots, you know, a lot of model shoots, not models of the Google Glass, but like as in people, you know, human models uh, showing it off. And all of it had to do with people like viewing things. And some of it was kind of creepy, like they were viewing like a murder scene. And I, I don't know, it was just regular people. It was, it was really creepy. So anyway, <laughs> or, you know, maybe not even human models. They might have been using uh, mannequins. But regardless, um, so Google Glass is, you know, the next generation of it is going to be powered by Intel, which I find to be kind of fascinating, considering that Google seems to be pushing so hard in the direction of ARM. And yet here comes Intel in with with, with that and whatever. So uh, another interesting, you know, this is going into software now. Microsoft uh, has bought Accompli, which is an email and calendar app for uh, iPhone and, you know, for iOS and, uh, and Android. And boy, it is, you know, cliche now almost to say it, but it we really are dealing with a very different Microsoft, a very new company that is uh, not working within a walled garden anymore, uh, depending on your definition of that. Uh, they they are really opening up and buying out this app, I think, is interesting because no one really seems to. It's, it's sort of a sneaky thing because no one really seems to want to buy something necessarily developed by Microsoft. But they would be willing, and this is a free app, of course, but they would be willing probably to use something where it's just sort of a, a back end of it. It's just like a lot of people, which this blows my mind. There's so many people that hate Facebook with every fiber of their being, but they use WhatsApp. <laughs> so so this is a similar you know, aspect for, for Microsoft to, to get into just you know, instead of going with another messaging app, which is pointless for them because they have Skype, uh, they are going into the area in which, you know, they are arguably known best, which is kind of productivity with, you know, email and calendars. So it's a smart move on their part. It is, you know, it's not dissimilar from what they, you know, from what every other tech giant is doing right now. But for Microsoft, it is unique or it's not unique, but it is different because Microsoft generally, you know, only makes Microsoft products. They don't care about other platforms. And here they are, you know, really giving a damn. And uh, that to speak nothing of Torque 2.0 uh, and, and other things, but that we'll save that for another episode. So uh, that's interesting. You know, keeping an eye on Microsoft, they're really diversifying. Uh, speaking of diversifying <laughs> another tech giant, even though some people, you know, up until recently haven't didn't want to call it a actual tech giant. But I think they are proving their chops in a very scary way. Uh, Amazon, once again, the Amazon World Domination Tour reporting continues on Sovereign Tech and Amazon is starting a new line of, uh, of products called Amazon Elements. Now, this includes products like diapers 
and paper towels, all, all kinds of, you know, various necessities, one could say, in life. And uh, this isn't necessarily new for Amazon to do. There was the Amazon Basics line, which actually actually makes some pretty decent stuff. Um, I buy Amazon Basics uh, hardware and accessories because they're really inexpensive, but they're high quality, admittedly. So uh, Amazon Elements is just another aspect of that. But here they are, you know, <laughs> spreading their seed um, in, in a whole new area to where they are very much becoming not just a misophony now, but also, you know, the potential is growing, I think, for them to become a monopoly in retail uh, to where they are pulling off what pretty much every other grocery store tries to do to get you in the doors by creating their own store brand and making it incredibly inexpensive, kind of like the popularity of grocery chains like Aldi's and others. So uh, Amazon just keeps on going. <laughs> and this is going to make sense. Also, keep in mind, this fits in with the fact that they're opening a store in Manhattan. And now, no, it's not because we asked the question, what are they going to sell at the store that they're opening in Manhattan that they're, they're probably going to open in other cities? You know, is they just going to put up like displays of fire uh, devices, you know, the fire phone and, and the HDX and all this? Nope. They'll actually sell you real goods like, you know, diapers and and perhaps whatever else. Who knows? So, uh, you know, the, the sky's the limit with this Amazon Elements line. So. As always, keeping an eye on these guys. The Entente is on its way. Now. <laughs> um, ah, this is a story. Okay. This is a story that uh, this is the last one we'll do for uh, for random access. And then we'll get into uh, our main story. And I'm going to touch on this briefly. And maybe next week or the week after when more information comes out, I will touch on it more uh, because there's certainly plenty to say. Uh, but with the, you know, the information is scarce as it stands and highly speculative. Not that I am afraid to speculate on things, you know that, but, uh, but I really want to have a complete picture of this, but Sony this past week, uh, past couple weeks have been there. There has been a, a crack or a hack as it's just getting tossed around, but uh, they, maybe this actually, for me, this might qualify as a hack uh, <laughs> because I consider a hack, a heroic, Act, where if it's a damaging act, it's it's a crack. Um, and they were hacked and terabytes of data were taken from Sony movies that are still in theaters or perhaps haven't even been released yet have been put up onto torrent sites because, you know, these DVD screener versions of it that generally get sent out to critics ahead of time uh, have, you know, have been uh, downloaded and now are unleashed. Uh, a lot of apparently a whole slew of personal data has been taking, including including, uh, you know, spread sheets with uh, one of the major concerns is that there's been employee health information as well as social social security numbers uh, sent out there all kinds of things uh, have been you know and as well as you know like um, uh, this is one of the more interesting things is that like a lot of executives their uh, their pay grades have come out <laughs> you know uh, how much money they make in a year and it's it, it's just mind-blowing how much it is um, just tons of information and it is not stopping. It keeps on going. And so uh, the theory goes is that it's actually it's North Korea uh, that has, um, you know, nor North Korea has has been the one that that did this 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 hack or crack. 
Now, I, I don't think that's true at all. The, the only two points I want to bring up right now, the first off is that the way this hack was implemented is very similar to uh, actions that have been done to countries in the Middle East. In fact, against the governments themselves, not just businesses. Uh, and apparently this is kind of unique because this was done to Sony Pictures of America, uh, which is the first time an American country has been, uh, you know, attacked this way, you know, this cyber attack or whatever. Um, and then, you know, that's that kind of stands out about this whole story. But considering the fact that this has been so commonplace in the Middle East, I can't help but feel that whoever did this is able to do it due to the fact that the NSA will not reveal its zero days and its ability, its back doors that it knows exist and are available. So at the end of the day, you know, there's no one to blame for this other than the NSA themselves, in my opinion. That's my opinion on this. But also, I want to say, I don't think this was North Korea. I think that this is hacker, you know, retribution, perhaps, retaliation, uh, you know, a bit of justice, a bit of hacker justice for George Hotz, who, if you don't know who George Hotz is, this is a young guy who, he was the, actually the first guy to, to, you know, to uh, unlock the iPhone years ago. And he was only, he was a teenager. He was like 16 or 17 or maybe 19. He was really, really young. Uh, he was also responsible for uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the cracking done to the PS3 to allow you to play homebrew games amongst other things. Um, and this is a long story that I want to save for a future hack sec. So, but George Hotz is a hero, is an outright hero. Uh, and in fact, Richard Stallman, who uh, Richard Stallman, of course, you know, one of the big guys behind, you know, Libra software, free software, uh, you know, GNU and Linux, etc. cetera. Uh, GNU plus Linux. I think that's how he wants me to say. <laughs> but Richard Stallman is also a hero, uh, you know, big proponent of open source, even though he wouldn't use those terms. And he actually recommended a boycott against Sony years ago because of the way that they had, you know, put out a lawsuit against George Hotz. Uh, and so, you know, now I'm not saying you have to go boycotting Sony like Stallman recommends. Stallman would recommend you also boycott Apple amongst other things. Okay. But, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if this was just a hacker group really getting back at Sony, uh, you know, for the way they treated George Hotz, uh, because George Hotz didn't do anything wrong. He just got hardware to do what the user wanted it to do. You know, he didn't make anything uh, dangerous, even though some people would want to link him with uh, the release of, with the previous Sony hack that happened years ago to where a whole ton of information, uh, you know, pr credit cards and all the stuff, whatever, got uh, got leaked from the PlayStation network. Um, but then even that, I, I, I think there's a lot of cloak and dagger here, bottom line. Uh, and I don't, but I don't think North Korea is behind this. I would far more venture that it was a bunch of uh, hackers, you know, perhaps instigating a bit of street justice. Uh, you know, why would they wait until now? I don't know. Maybe it took them this long to figure out, uh, you know, the, the, the best way to make this happen. Or maybe Sony was planning on a big year or they're kicking a man while it's down because Sony is really changing up their business models, not just Sony Pictures of America, but, you know, Sony in, in general. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good question. And, you know, that's that's as far as I, I really want to talk about it. When more information comes out, we'll, we'll talk about it on, on HackSec. So but uh, boy, if you don't know the story of George Hotz, check him out because I mean, this is one of the coolest guys out there. So anyway, uh, let's get into our main story of the week because we've got a doozy.
And this story is coming from the Daily Mail. Uh, Are we on the brink of creating artificial life? Scientists digitize the brain of a worm, as in a real worm, and place it inside a robot. Let's read the story here. With 100 million neurons and 37 trillion cells, the human body is simply too complex to be artificially designed by modern computers. But in the quest to create artificial life, what if we started a lot smaller? What's That's what a team of scientists has done, creating a replica of the simplest form of life we know. The worm Canorhabditis, I probably got that wrong, uh, Elegans, <laughs> Still got it wrong. It's just 300 neurons and around 1000 cells. And now a robot has been created that mimics the actions of this simple organism. The Open Worm Project, a global effort, including researchers from the U.S. and U.K., is attempting to create the world's first digital animal. Earlier this year, they ran a successful Kickstarter campaign to fund the creation of a worm you can download onto your computer. And they also created a robot that mimics the actions of a real-life worm. C. elegans, which, that's that worm, is one of the simplest forms of life we know, uh, thanks to its limited neurons and cells, and thus researchers have been able to accurately map its body. The worm, though simple, contains 80% of the same genes as humans and can be studied as a more basic version of complex life. With a brain, stomach, and bodily functions, the worm has provided scientists with a way to study life on a much smaller and more manageable scale. In his, this latest project, the researchers mapped the entire psychology or physiology, I'm sorry, of a C. elegans organism. They then create, recreated the worm's brain, cells, and more in a dig, in digital form, complete with neurons firing, quote unquote, to make decisions. Uh, the ultimate goal of the project is to give people access to their own digital worm called WormSim to study on their computers through the Open Worm Project. Following the successful Kickstarter campaign, this should be available next year. So next year, you will be able to download software that is your very own digital life form. Uh, but they have also inserted the artificial brain of the worm into a Lego machine, specifically a Lego Mindstorms EV3 robot. By recreating the 302 neurons and 959 cells of this tiny nematode worm, the robot can then be left to mimic the actions of a real-life worm. This means it moves around, runs into obstacles like walls, and also turns. The The robot is very basic for now and does not possess the ability to perform more complex functions such as eating. It's an important step, though, to creating artificial life that can think for itself. While this worm is a very basic form of life, it may be a precursor to making much more complex animals. This will be a huge undertaking, though. Uh, even, a mouse ha- even a mouse has 22 million neurons in its brain. The mere act of trying to put a working model together causes us to realize that we, what we know and what we don't know, John Long, a roboticist and neuroscientist, uh, says. So, woo, boy. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, and the overarching thing here is that uh, creating an artificial brain is viewed as being the first step to creating artificial intelligence. Some experts even believe that the key to one day inhabiting faraway planets is to get rid of the body altogether, such as how cartoon villain Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did. (laughs) So that makes for a nice little uh, segue from last week's episode where we talked about the Ninja Turtles. Uh, And, you know, I could we could talk about that, that bit of fancifulness. Uh, certainly, you know, the idea of of going elsewhere. But uh, this is the points I want to bring up to you with this 
story, and I'm going to just rehash it real quick. So the Open Worm Global Project is making a digital worm. Their project is recreating the neurons and the cells. So they didn't really like download. They, they recreated it. They did not download an actual worm brain into the computer, which is kind of how the story leads you on to think. Uh, and of course, the worm is the simplest organism we know, uh, but has similarities to humans. Now, here's a point I take issue with. OK, because <laughs> they're saying it's like, well, it's 80 percent just like humans. And this is something that, uh, you know, OK, is kind of a finer point, because a lot of people want to bring up the fact that, well, chimpanzees and bonobos, who are equidistantly, uh, you know, in evolution to us, uh, they they have, you know, we're we're 98 percent just like chimpanzees. OK, but you got to be careful with that, because that even with the, the difference between chimpanzees, which is 18 percent greater than worms, obviously, you could tell it just by looking at them. That 2%, or in this case, the 20%, is, I mean, it's not just 2%. You can't just think about it as simple as being, well, it's 2% like it. There are drastic differences in that 2%. I mean, just huge, massive differences in genome, you know, at that point. So, yes, they're that similar, but within those percentages are just leaps and bounds of complexity. So... I, I really don't like it when they say, well, they're just, uh, you know, they're 80 percent like us. So this is a good step. No, you know, even if you're talking about a chimpanzee, we're talking about huge, huge differences, even though it may not look like a huge difference in, in measurable distance by the percentage. It is. a. It, I mean, it's just it's night and day by a long shot. So uh, not so hopeful on that with this. But l let's see. Just a couple other quick points here. Um, by making a digital worm, the team, the team hope to create artificial life. I want to talk about that. Uh, they have implanted the digital mind of the worm into a Lego machine. So what they did do is they actually they, they took this what this recreation and they uploaded that into like this robot. Now, obviously, these worms are incredibly small on the order of millimeters. OK, and but they put it into a giant like Lego type robot machine, which is pretty cool. You know, good, for, good for Lego for being so damned useful, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and so it can move around and apparently it more or less is moving around. And there's some degree of, of video on this website, uh, that are on this, in this link in the show notes at sovereigntech.com that you can see it moving. Uh, and it does move like a worm, you know, it's allowed to simulate the actions of a worm. And amazingly, when you put that brain into it, it starts to act like it, which is pretty impressive. Uh, so, and uh, let's see, next year, again, the team will allow people to download their own digital worm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's an ironic thing. I might have called it something else. I might have gotten away from the word worm because the word worm means so many things in the computer, you know, in the tech realm already. And they're all very negative as to what they're trying to do is a very uh, positive uh, thing you could say. So, OK, <laughs> here, here we have this attempt at artificial life. Uh, and at artificial intelligence, which a lot of people uh, and we've talked about it before on Sovereign Tech, which a lot of people are very uh, either very excited about or very concerned about. There seems to be two camps. Nobody's really sitting in the middle. And arguably, it is a creation that maybe one should not be uh, so apathetic about. You should either care one way or the other, you know, be excited about it or be perhaps terrified of it. And a thought occurred to me when I was reading uh, this story. And the thought that really occurred to me 
is that, I mean, there's so many of these attempts going on right now. And, and obviously we've talked uh, briefly about IBM's Watson, but I wondered, okay, now the, the creation of all this stuff, what these guys are doing with the open worm project, you know, by and large could be, could be considered exciting. Uh, it's interesting, you know, perhaps how much more efficient could computer processes become even with the very basic, uh, you know, implementation of say worm brains or maybe even mouse brains or whatever. Okay. So, and, and, and I'm going, you know, and I say that with, without, you know, with ignoring the idea, the fact that there's governments and what the fuck would they do with this kind of technology? Would they make better killing machines? Uh, you know, forget about that. Let's not talk about that. What I want to get into, what I want to lay out for you is the possibility that because this, this happened pretty quickly that they were able to do this. Granted, like I said, the differences between a worm and and a human, even at the fact that worms are 80 percent like humans, are leaps and bounds, light years of difference. But here's the question I want to pose to you. Is artificial intelligence already here? Has it already been created? Considering how fast that this project was put together. Is that AI dream? Because there's plenty of scientists who would tell you that AI is just never going to happen. Like it, it can't. It's just not feasible or that at the very least we're decades, if not hundreds of years away. But I wonder and I wonder about projects like IBM's Watson, because I think IBM has been working on AI a lot longer than any other company out there, including Google with Google Brain and all that bullshit. And I wonder if it's already here. And, you know, you can ask the question, well, wouldn't we know? But if it's an artificial intelligence, would it tell you that it's here? And that's what I want to pose. And I kind of, you know, I can't help but wonder. Uh, <laughs> I, my mind really started to, to go into some very uh, far out places. And I wondered if a lot of the, you know, just the incredible growth in, in the past few years uh, had to, you know, is, is it something being, and, and please, a total speculation, I have, I have practically nothing in the way of facts, other than it's amazing how fast that the Open Worm Project was developed. Okay, I have nothing. So I'm just speculating with you. We're having fun. This is Sovereign Tech. It's what we do. But I wondered if a lot of the advancement, a lot of the directions that that things are going, uh, including like we mentioned with Google Glass about the importance of no, 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 no. Look, we're not going to release this this product if it doesn't have a camera on it. I wonder if a lot of this is actually the the guidance of an artificial intelligence. And I wonder if the prevalence of the surveillance state is not something that anybody, you know, that, that, that humans was, were pushing, but it was something that an AI was pushing or perhaps the humans were pushing to, you know, maybe Google's, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe this is all humans doing it and maybe Google and, and Apple and whoever else are pushing smartphones and mobile devices so much because it's giving their artificial intelligence developments, uh, practical omniscience and omnipresence by being able to access every device on the planet. So, so my theory went, and I actually, I posted this on social media. My idea was, is like, is it possible that 
you know, they're, we're not getting by Google and by all these other companies. They're not, you know, putting out this mobile technology to make our lives easier. They're pushing it out there so that their AI can get developed faster or become more powerful, more omniscient and more omnipresent. <laughs> and it was just it was just something I thought about. And I, and I haven't really heard anybody mention um, you know, but overall, I just want to I want to speak on to the idea of AI. And we're going to talk about artificial intelligence uh, a whole hell of a lot more uh, in future episodes of Sovereign Tech. So but I just want to say that I am admittedly very concerned uh, and I know I'm not the only one. Stephen Hawking, uh, Elon Musk and others have said that artificial intelligence may be the most dangerous things, you know, most dangerous thing that the humanity has ever developed or will developed. Uh, or will develop. And uh, I'm inclined to agree. I am not okay with with an AI uh, that, in fact, here's what I think should be developed. And I actually talked about this with a very good friend. It was, it was his idea. What should be developed is right now is not an AI, but a defender, a defending intelligence. Okay. Something that because I agree, there's, you know, I've talked about, or, you know, like, like uh, David, uh, uh, David Irvin's, Irvine's, you know, uh, distributed autonomous intelligence where a car, car owns itself. I'm excited about these ideas. I like these ideas and because government's not involved for one. Okay. But perhaps what we should be developing right now is a, you know, uh, an antidote perhaps to, or a cure to the AI disease. If, if we were to compete, use those terms for, to describe it. And because the question becomes, is that would an AI have empathy? Which some would say, and I would argue, is the cornerstone of of interaction, of voluntary interaction, of freedom for everything. Rats have empathy. Everything has every, like almost every creature out there, save me, perhaps the worm has empathy. It is the basis of life. Life did not was not, you know, what's what's the old Dorian uh, Dorian Sagan uh, uh Quote, you know, life did not come through combat. It came through networking and networking occurs through empathy. And so very disconcerting about the idea that, you know, is an AI going to have empathy? Is it going to have understanding? So perhaps what needs to be worked on right now isn't even a digital worm. OK, and it's not creating an artificial intelligence, but it's creating an intelligence that is or creating a, a, a hardware or software that is designed to defend against an A.I. Do you get what I'm saying? A defensive system that specifically works, not something to figure out all these complex problems or whatever that, that people want A.I. to do, but something that defends against, you know, that creates a stalemate situation against an oppressive, perhaps, artificial intelligence. So we went way out there with this segment, but hey, I get to do that. It's my show. <laughs> I'll be back with more. Behind the wall of history, there is a story that has never been told. A story of a world that ended only to usher in the beginning of our own. This is a time that ancient tomes could only describe in metaphor. Prepare for the very first video game from Zomia Offline Games, Hypercronius. Hypercronius will allow you to experience a time beyond your imagination in a fully interactive 16-bit 
two-dimensional role-playing experience. Hyperchronius. Know the past, and you can know the future. From Zomia Offline Games. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. If you'll excuse me. Uh, you're not Natalia. Who are you? Oh, hello, Mr. Sovereign. Natalia is on another mission. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here to debrief you. I'd love for you to debrief me, but, uh, how did you get in my room? The bellboy let me in. Well, hooray for the bellboy. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get sent to me through the various channels available. Of course, BitMessage, uh, Twitter, Google+, and the email brian at zomiaofflinegames.com, which, of course, the PGP key for that can be found on the MIT server, uh, as well as uh, in the show notes at uh, Sovereign Tech. Dot com. So, uh, you know, boy, the artificial intelligence things, I know I just I laid out some wild thoughts on you and we really need to explore uh, quite a bit more of it. It is a topic that is going to span over many episodes. I'm not going to say it's in every episode, but it's something we're going to keep an eye on and keep talking about. And the idea of being able to download a proverbial I mean, how much you want to call a worm intelligent is up to you, uh, but that's that's really shining a, a very intriguing light, I think, into its possibility. So it needs to be discussed. Um, and it's a technology, actually, uniquely that I get to talk about on Sovereign Tech that may be dangerous with government or without it. So it's worth, you know, it, it's something different that I get to explore because often I'm just, you know, saying, OK, well, look, the government's here. We don't want this. <laughs> OK, uh, but this is one that we might not want at all. Uh, so anyway, I, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about that more. Uh, and I hope you you don't mind my my fancifulness with my theories there in the last segment. Um, now, this segment, I will give you full warning. This is a, this this is a, from a story sent to me by a listener. Uh, a listener that is Christian. And I know I have a lot of Christian or religious listeners. Okay. And I want you, I want to warn you that I am going to, this is about the Pope and atheism. Okay. And I'm, I am saying to you that I cannot guarantee that I will not offend a religious position in this discussion. Okay. Uh, I am going to, you know, speak, my mind, as one always should, particularly when they're doing a podcast, when they're disseminating information. OK, so if you do not want to hear, because I know you get a lot out of this show that has nothing to do with my, you know, my atheism or whatever. And this is a scientific this is a show about science and technology and how it sets you free. OK, atheism is a scientific is considered a scientific prospect. So it's worth talking about here. All right. I'm not going to save it for the climax. So if you do not want to hear that part of the show, you can skip to the next segment because we've got great stuff to talk about during uh, during important messages. OK, so, you know, let, let's do this. 
Uh, and you know, I'm just I'm giving you full warning, okay? That that I am going to say things, and that's okay. People can disagree. You know, <laughs> it's it's all right. We these kind of discussions need to happen, and so I'm actually glad this got sent in uh, by a listener, and I believe this is actually via my Facebook page, which hopefully won't be around much longer. So anyway, uh, if you don't want to hear it, please, you know, if you think this is completely out of place for a tech show, for a science and tech show to talk about, then go ahead, skip, go to the next segment. You don't have to hear this. Okay. But I'm going to do it. Here we go. So this is from, uh, boy, earlier in, in 2013. So this is kind of older news, but, uh, but it's pretty evergreen, I guess. And, uh, it is from the Huffington post and Pope Francis course this being the newest pope the the black pope is often called not because he's black he's actually argentinian um but uh, he is a jesuit so i don't know if that you know how necessarily that gives him the title of the black pope but uh here we go uh, pope francis's pope, pope francis's atheist letter says god's mercy has no limits uh, once again, breaking with traditional Vatican protocol, Pope Francis on Wednesday, September 11th, this is uh, 2013, penned a long letter to the Italian liberal daily uh, La Repubblica to affirm that an open dialogue free of prejudices between Christians and atheists is necessary and precious. Well, I can't <laughs> I can't guarantee free of prejudice here. <laughs> but anyway, um Free of, I'm not going to treat you like shit after the fact. How about that? <laughs> uh, Francis's front page letter was a response to two open letters published in previous months by Eugenio Scalfari, the founder of La Repubblica and an avowed atheist. The Pope's letter is especially notable for its open and honest assessment of the spiritual state of non-believers and for an institution that long claimed sole jurisdiction on matters of salvation Francis seems to open the door to the idea that notions of sin, conscience, and forgiveness are not the exclusive domain of the Catholic Church. In his messages to the Pope, among other things, Scalfari had asked him whether God forgives, forgives those who do not believe and do not seek faith. Francis seemed to hint in his response that those who don't believe are not necessarily excluded from God's forgiveness. Given that, and this is the key point, God's mercy has no limits. If you go to him with a sincere and repentant heart, the issue for those who do not believe in God is to obey their conscience. Francis writes in his letter, sin, even for those who have no faith, is when one goes against their conscience, he added, to listen and to obey to one's conscience means to decide one's uh, oneself in relation to what's perceived as good and evil. And this decision is fundamental to determining the good or evil of our actions. Oh, boy. I'm going to read on. Speaking about the church's relationship with uh, with Jews, Francis stresses that Christians and humanity as a whole should be grateful that Jews have kept their faith despite the terrible tests of the past centuries. Uh too bad Jews uh, about even just 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, couldn't have come to this conclusion. But regardless, I'll, I'll read on. In the letter, the Argentine Pope also addresses one of the themes of his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, who had often condemned relativism, the incapacity of modern societies and men to recognize any absolute truth, such as God, as one of the evils of our time. 
So Pope Benedict was saying that, uh, no, look, there is an absolute truth. Okay. And that absolute truth is God and Jesus is the son, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, you know, that's what Christians say. That's, that's the Christian position. It's not just Catholic, uh, for Francis, there is no such thing as an absolute truth. If that means a truth that can stand by itself without any relationship, Truth, according to the Christian faith, is God's, this is the Pope talking, Pope Francis. Truth, according to the Christian faith, is God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, truth is a relationship. Francis concludes, despite the slowness, the infidelity, the errors and sins it committed and might still commit against its members, the church, trust me, has no other meaning and goal but to live and witness Jesus. And that is the article. Okay. (laughs) I can come at this from quite a few different aspects uh, because I was uh, raised a Jew. Later, uh, my parents converted to Christianity. Um, I, I became an atheist as a teenager, ended up going into the, uh, you know, going into the military and became a Christian again, while, while in the military stayed a Christian for quite a few, quite a few years after that. Uh, I was a very, I was, <laughs> uh, what's the saying, uh, how Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay. I was a Christian of Christians. Believe me. I poured a ton of money into the church. I poured a ton of time into a church, not, not Catholicism. Okay. <laughs> but it was more non-denominational. All right. But, and actually when I was having a quote unquote crisis of faith, I will admit to you that I almost became a Catholic. And I'll tell you why that is the reason I almost became a Catholic. Uh, and what I ended up doing was just becoming an atheist, uh, again, which is what I was born, which I, which in my opinion is what everybody's born. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I was going to become a Catholic because Catholicism allows for, based upon various verses, some in like in, in Second Timothy, okay, where it's not just you don't just live by the words, but you also live by the traditions. This is coming from Paul. You live by the traditions, you know, that that are laid out. So it's the word and traditions. And Catholicism is that organization that's been around for a good, you know, thousand, couple thousand years that has a ton of traditions and that they can change the rules because you're supposed to follow the traditions. And if the tradition is, is that the Pope is the, you know, the Holy See lays down what the law actually is for Christians, then it's great. You, it can make sense. Like if you have a problem with, with the creation story, it doesn't fit in with science or there's something wrong in the Bible and it doesn't fit in with science. The Holy See can just change it. They can't change the Bible, but they can just change the interpretation. They can, you know, break out the the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is essentially, you know, you can't you can't understand the Bible without the catechism, according to Catholicism. Okay, and they can put it in there to know this is what it actually means. So uh, Catholicism is a very logical form of Christianity. And in fact, I would dare argue with you that it is the only true form of Christianity. So what I'm about to say here understand that I'm coming from an aspect of, believe me, I get Catholicism. I, I, I still own a copy of the catechism because I was so, you know, really being into this because so many like voluntarists and anarchists and, and, and libertarians and whatever are Catholic. So I thought it fit in pretty well with the, the path of liberty that I was going down, you know, around the year 2006, 2007, as it was. Okay. But if I will say this, if I were a Christian and I read this, from the Pope of the Catholic Church, I would run away from the Catholic Church in a heartbeat. So I'm going to talk about this in the first place from the position of a Christian. 
because uh, this, <laughs> this, is, this is nuts. So let's see. Sin, even for those who have no faith, is when one goes against their conscience. No, wrong. Uh, if I were a Bible believer, sin is going against God's will, going against God's law, and the wages of sin is death. It is not going against your own conscience. That's subjectivism. That's saying, well, in my conscience, I mean, did Charles Manson then go against his own conscience? This is a ridiculous argument to be making. It's saying there's no objective reality. And then here we go. So for Francis, there is no such thing as an absolute truth. If it means that that truth, if it means a truth that can stand by itself without any relationship, he is saying right there, there is no objective reality. And here's my concern with this because look, I know, I know there's so many Christians and I think it's insane that they want to toss out the writings of Paul. They want to toss out all the, the old Testament, which doesn't make any sense because how can you toss out the old Testament and believe Jesus is the Christ without the reason that you knew Jesus was the Christ was because he was fulfilling prophecies from the old Testament. So thus those things must be valid. And the only thing that Jesus ever quoted was the book of Deuteronomy, which I would argue may be the only valid book in the old Testament, but that's another story. Okay. But Come on. I know you want to toss all this stuff out. So then, but then let's just say that all you go by is the word of Jesus Christ himself. Well, when Pontius Pilate is about to put Jesus on the cross, he has an argument saying, what did you say? Blah, blah, blah. What is this? And then the classic Latin line of what is truth? And Jesus says, you know, God, essentially God is truth, which is what Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict the 16th was making the point. But Pope Francis here is saying, nah, 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 not really. <laughs> no, there's, there's no absolute truth. There's no objective reality. And so if the largest organization or largest uh, denomination within Christianity believes that there is no objective reality, I mean, what more do I have to say? So I take a, a lot of a lot of issue with uh, with this in in a lot of ways. Okay, first off, what the Pope is saying is positively ridiculous from a biblical standpoint. Now, like I mentioned earlier, according to the Catechism, he can just change the rules as he goes along. And in that case, well, I guess maybe maybe that maybe then it's true that the Catholic Church has always made sure that there's no absolute truth because you can just shift how things go. Suddenly, you can be nice to Jews instead of accuse them of drinking the blood of your babies. So regardless, um, the idea, the, the main thing here for me is that somehow, you know, I'm annoyed that people are like, oh, well, this, this Pope is so accepting of my atheism. Oh, how nice. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'd like to have, have dinner with this guy or whatever. So, okay, look, I don't want to spend a whole ton of time of my life arguing with Christians over every little thing. And in fact, I am willing all I, you know, a lot of people say, boy, sometimes when you talk about Christianity, you come off very angry and, and, and whatever. And, you know, all I really want admittedly from Christians is I want them to admit, and you cannot argue away the book of revelation. You can't argue it away. It is the singular most Christian text out there. And it's the only one that we're pretty goddamn sure was written relatively close to the actual life of Jesus. By everybody's metrics, you know, it was written in, in 90 CE or 92 CE. All I want is for them to admit 
I want Christians to admit that they are okay with, like Jesus Christ does when he comes down on, in Revelation 19, that he that they are okay with him killing billions of people and then sending uh, you know a whole shit ton of animals to eat all of their flesh of all these people. It, it is a gruesome act by a supposed God of love. I just want you to admit to that, that you're okay with it. And then we can move on. And then we can talk about, you know, whatever various things. But it really is. It's so tough, you know, to, to deal with people when they just do Bible buffet. You know, when when it's like, well, yeah, I don't believe in this part, but I believe in this part. I don't believe in this part, but I believe in this part. Look, I know my Bible fucking exceptionally well. I hope I've proven that over the time of Sovereign Tech or on Free Talk Live or whatever. And I give credit where credit's due. Look, I tell you when I the book of Daniel. Yeah, that's fucking weird how it knows all that. And it has historicity on its side. I am open to these weird things, you know. Anyway, I want to I want to get. I want to get more to the meat of this. And look, yes, I know there's set of you know, there, there's Catholics that are that don't believe in a pope ever, you know, that 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 is uh, any pope is valid after Vatican II. I know about that. OK, I know that there's denominations that don't believe in hell. All right. Uh, like like Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses. OK, but then they still believe Jesus is still going to wipe out billions of people. OK, I know. I know there's all these different things that are oh, it's so goddamn peaceful, but it really doesn't make any sense. Well, I guess it makes sense in the pope's light that there is no objective truth. There is no actual truth. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But it is shocking that one of the things that the church really did hold on to the Catholic Church for so long is that there is no salvation outside of the outside of the church. But I guess that has changed. But here's the overall problem with all of this. My, my problem with this is that religious people own the conversation. You do, they do. I mean, they own the conversation because I have to to say to you that I don't believe in God. I have to say I don't believe in God as to where to an atheist. The concept of God doesn't exist. And in fact, I mean, in general, in nature, it doesn't exist. It's not there. OK, and, and this is ironic, too, because, uh, in fact, Paul in Ephesians here, I'll use a little Bible for you. Uh, I believe it's in Ephesians where Paul says no one has an excuse to not believe in the creator, to believe in God. OK, because if you just look at the book of nature, he's saying if you just look at nature, you can't help but realize it. So, you know, that goes completely against what Pope Francis is saying, because no one has an excuse to not know. But regardless, the Pope is making the claim that atheists are making the claim and that you have to respect, you know, and that we're willing to respect an atheist claim. But that's the problem. Atheists aren't making a claim. They're making all the claims and they're making claims based on by his own admittance outside of re objective reality. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that an atheist to an atheist and Again, I would argue to anyone that's born, there is no, there's no, he doesn't look out, unlike what Paul says, he doesn't look out and see God. He does not. He does not see, you know, the invisible hand. He doesn't see any of that. He sees objective reality that he or she will interact with. The atheist is making no claim. There's nothing to respect or disrespect. But that's the problem is that these guys, like the Pope is saying here, like, well, you can't disprove us and uh, you can't prove your opinion. No, there's nothing to prove. There's no position to prove here. There's no position for you to respect. There's no God. 
But I have to say that this is how you control the conversation. I have to say that in a way that somehow validates yours because I'm even using the word God in the atheist perspective, not in the atheist, vo- atheist vocabulary, okay, or in the atheist world that we have to deal in. But in the atheist perspective, the idea doesn't exist. There's no claim being made by the atheist. This entire conversation with the Pope shouldn't even exist. And I don't, I don't understand. I don't think any atheist even why. I mean, then why? Seriously, Christians, why even believe? Why bother believing? Why not go have that good time like those carnal Christians do based upon Romans 9? Just go live it up, man, because it doesn't matter as long as you're following your conscience. And if your conscience says getting in an orgy is a good time, well, hey, then according to the Pope, you're fine. Why even bother? Look, if there's no objective reality, I'll stop doing sovereign tech because what the fuck is the point? Why bother doing a science and tech show if everything's just, well, it can just change tomorrow. You know, I mean, like, like literally the laws of the universe can just change tomorrow since everything is, you know, just subjective. No, if we're not operating without an objective reality, there's no point to anything. And you know what? I know there's plenty of people in the liberty movement that think that everything is subjective scares the shit out of me more so than government i'll be back with more time now for 90 seconds on sex with dr paul here in the western world we consume tremendous amounts of antidepressant medications there's a certain class of antidepressants called ssris that we've been told have fewer side effects well this might be true as long as you don't include problems with erections ejaculations sex drive and fertility Some of the more common SSRI antidepressants include Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro, and Zoloft. As for sexual side effects, the Journal of Sexual Medicine has suggested that anyone being prescribed SSRIs should be informed that there is a high probability of sexual side effects while on SSRI medications, and there are indications that in an unknown number of cases, these side effects may not resolve once you stop taking the medication and could be potentially irreversible. You might think that depression and sexual problems go hand in hand. So researchers have compared men who were depressed and taking SSRIs with those who were taking other types of antidepressants. It was only in the men who were taking SSRI antidepressants that they found an association with severe erection failure and ejaculation delay, as well as problems with sexual desire. So if you started having sexual side effects after you began taking antidepressants, be sure to tell your healthcare provider and discuss alternatives. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. I just received an encrypted message from Decentral with your next mission, and it looks like I'm coming along. Why, Elizabeth, I wouldn't have it any other way. You're clearly good at staying on top of things. It helps when one's partner is very skilled. No, no, we can have more fun later. What does the message say? Important messages. 
It is time for Important Messages, where I cover the messages that get sent to me via BitMessage, via email, brian at zomiaofflinegames.com, and all the other various channels, Twitter, you take your pick. And uh, I do want to say, again, I know I have a lot of new listeners. Actually, numbers are starting to pick up again on Sovereign Tech, and uh, I appreciate that. You know, something everybody that can really do, uh, well, the the point I was going to make is that I do keep you anonymous unless you tell me you want me to say your name uh, on the show. Okay. But by default, I keep people anonymous other than a pronoun, you know, he, she. So anyway, uh, a great way to help the show is to share episodes. Like I would love it. Uh, I think I mentioned it last week. If you want to share that episode, uh, it was a special 38, I believe where uh, we talked about Battlesuit Runner Fitness, which I just love. In fact, was cranking that out just the other day. Uh, you know, sharing episodes, sharing your favorite episodes, please feel free to do that. Uh, and actually, I want to let you know one that you might want to share around, because a lot of people really, really enjoyed this episode, was, and we're going to talk more about it, actually, in, in later on in this segment, uh, but was the episode 99B, which was about... Uh, you know, Sovereign Tech 2099, where I, again, I went to the year 20, quote unquote, went into the year 2099. <laughs> uh, and I am uh, this coming week, I am actually going to release a special edition of sorts of that episode to where I'm going to put in uh, the the ending sequence from 99A into the beginning of it. I'm also going to clean up the Kirk audio uh, that that was in it that ended up being kind of low and then I came kind of booming out a bit. Uh, and then at the end of it, I am going to talk more. I am going to do a discussion um, about, you know, how I planned out 2099. I'm going to, I talked about this before. I said that I would do a special because I got a ton of questions about what exactly was life like on Osiris one in 2099. Uh, you know, how I planned that out, how I planned out the fictional world of 2099. And uh, I will do that. I will be going through those questions and I will talk more about how I fleshed that out um, and and more about the episode. So it's going to be a special edition release. There might be other specials next week, too, but uh, that is one that is coming. So but let's get into the emails. Um, and yeah, you can share that episode when it when it comes out or you can share whatever episodes you like, even, you know, classic ones. That's that's fine. Uh, you know, that's something else real quick, too. Uh, I haven't been doing a I still have tons of game codes to give out for games of the you know, for, for games of the week to have you share stuff uh, next week. I will start doing those again, where probably during important messages, I will say, OK, this is what you need to do. And you can get this game uh, like next week. I'm going to be giving away Sonic Generations. Uh, so anyway, that that will be starting up again. I have games. I have so many games to give away uh, game codes to give away. It's really uh, outlandish. So I need to do something with them Uh, anyway. So last week I had asked during the first segment of the show about Facebook, the Facebook quandary. I was just like, I, I I'm lost. I don't understand. Why is Facebook doing all of this encryption, right? Like, uh, putting in, you know, Moxie's tech secure protocols into WhatsApp, uh, doing a tour website, uh, for Facebook, you know, and, and all these other things. And, and a lot of like the, the login authentication that they are, you know, the, the double blind kind of login authentication that they're doing all these various things that they seem to be doing right but it's facebook who you know who i think exists because of the fact of how much information it can give to alphabet soup organizations around the world uh you know about its users and that i also of course i've theorized that uh facebook is going to be integrating bitcoin very soon via circle uh 
And in the Facebook Messenger, because the Facebook Messenger has, uh, you know, has recently put in a wallet feature into the code. You don't see it yet. And there's the buy button, all that stuff. And uh, and also that I, I theorize that Facebook is the first is the first real attempt that'll sneak in on everybody. That is a national ID of sorts. So uh, anyway, so why is Facebook doing this? Because, again, I think the company in and of itself is not looking out for uh, human freedom by any stretch. And so I asked, what do you think? And uh, let's see, we've got a, got a couple emails here I want to get to with it. Uh, let's see. Uh, hey, Brian, thanks for doing the show. I really love it and I'm thankful for the time you spend on it. Miss you on Free Talk Live, though. Anyway, my guess is that Facebook knows some people are worried about their privacy, so they are offering a quote-unquote secure way of messaging. I don't trust it one damn bit. Thanks again, man. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that that's... Right. I think they know people want privacy. And in fact, I think um, I think that Firefox, the browser Firefox is going to bank pretty hard if they don't get bought out by Microsoft or Yahoo in the near future It's going to bank pretty hard on being the browser of privacy. Uh, and so certainly there is a market for this. And I agree. It's smart for Facebook to at least give the illusion that that's what they that that that's what they're they're doing. Uh, another one was actually posted uh, on the on the sound on the SoundCloud page on the actual sound itself, and this is certainly the conclusion that I'll admit I kind of came to, which is that this is a honeypot. Yes, and uh, in many ways, both statements just made are you know are kind of the same. But yeah, I agree. It, it is. I think it's just a honeypot. So uh, there's actually a uh, kind of a at the end of this year, uh, Paige Peterson has set up a national or an international, uh, a global delete your Facebook account day. So you're welcome to join in on that if you don't trust this stuff. The best one, though, this is the best email I got from uh, about this question is they heard episode 99B, which we were just talking about and, and where I mentioned that Facebook, uh, you know, ended up just like tanking and the company no longer existed by uh, 2024. I think I said, it says they heard episode 99 being got spooked. They don't want to go down in 10 years. Now it's time for the Commonwealth to turn things around. <laughs> That's that perfect. I, I thought that was, that was the best one. That was so good. So uh, yeah, cause I had predicted that Facebook won't, won't exist anymore, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> that was that was really cute. So uh, so that that gets into that. Those were just by and large, all the responses were along the same lines, it's just that they're they're either tricking people into using their services um, or they're just being opportunist uh, to a degree. Uh, I, I all the same was still a bit of trickery uh, to get people on board. So I uh, got a lot of boy. I have so many emails to get to. I'm glad I made this uh, this segment um, longer. So but what I want to get into now uh, is actually, we we talked last week, okay, because, and this is one of the big questions, and I could have saved this for, and I'll talk more about it in that special edition of the 2099 of 99B that's coming out, okay, but, um, but I got a, a lot of, a lot of people sent a lot of emails about my discussion on money, and about a society existing or a civilization, take your pick of the term, everybody's like, oh, what is society, what is it, I know, okay, a group of people, Existing, coexisting <laughs> without money. How does that work? Because I had said right in the opener of 99B, which supposedly, you know, took place in 2099, that there was no money. And so I talked about uh, last week, uh, you know, I got into that. And a lot of people, you shared your thoughts on what, you know, 
what ex- you're just wondering, like, what the hell are you talking about? And some of you had said it's like you didn't really get into what exactly you theorized, you know, there being no money meant for for 2099. Uh, so I want I want to talk about that. Um, so last week, I, I feel that I had shown that through the scant data we have on the Incan Empire that in, in history, that's a real empire that a society can thrive artistically, can grow uh, you know, can come what would be described almost as an empire and can peacefully assimilate other uh, cultures and groups, whatever, you know, they, they define themselves as without the use of coinage or notes or, a, you know, a cryptocurrency or obviously, <laughs> OK, that a society could really grow very quickly and be very advanced, especially for its time, uh, you know, technologically, at least. For its time, you know, because we're talking, you know, 12th to, you know, 15th century like that, uh, <laughs> that, that time frame um, and not have a market economy. OK, so that we can see that that occurs historically. So, you know, we, we, we talked about that, that that can more or less exist. So now the question becomes. Is that what exactly was the economy in 2099 on Osiris one, which is this fictional floating city that, that I created that maybe hopefully one day wouldn't be so fictional, but, <laughs> uh, and that economy there, because I had said there was no money was not a market economy. As you would understand it, I envisioned Osiris one and it's my party. I can cry if I want to. Okay. I imagine on Osiris one that it was a gift economy. Now, what is a gift economy? A gift economy is, and boy, if there's a million different definitions of this, okay, (laughs) you know, but this is my understanding of a gift economy via the works of Charles Eisenstein and some others, okay, who actually write very intriguing books. And a gift economy is that there isn't really uh, what, what many would term as a medium of exchange, that you just give your services to someone. Okay. Or you give a product to someone. That's why it's, it's a gift. You just give it. There's no, uh, you know, necessarily what one would call a fair trade value. You know, there's no like, well, if he gives me a car, I better give him a car back. It's like, no, you just give them the car. So now this gift economy, you know, again, that's, that's not really, I don't think that that falls under a market economy. It also does not fall under because I think a lot of people, especially when they read like Eisenstein's work, they think that that ends that it's socialism or that it's communism. And it's not that either because you still have, because of the very essence of the fact that you are giving something to someone that you are gifting something to someone, it is inferring property. Now I have no hard dogma on property. So we're not going to go there. Okay. But that is, that is a gift economy where you just give the person that. Okay. It is not communism. It is not socialism. It is not, but it's also not capitalism. It is not a market economy uh, as I would understand one. So that's what I theorized the economy being in Osiris one. Maybe a gift economy wouldn't work. There are some tribes around the world that still use a gift economy. Uh, You know, maybe maybe it's just not possible. But I would argue here's what I would argue is that if you stuck within and this is how I was thinking with Osiris one, because the population and I never got into this, but I'll I'll definitely talk more about it in that special coming up next week. Um, The population of Osiris one was approximately 200 people. 
Not a lot of people at all. Uh, and in fact, even that would be broken down into even even smaller groups at points. Um, and so that falls within the Dunbar number, which I would argue is scientifically proven. And I would argue that within the Dunbar number, certain things can work that would not work in a in, in a larger scale society. Okay, and this this kind of speaks to the idea of decentralization. And so, you know, in that future, in 2099, I had, you know, various passes, permanent autonomous zones or temporary autonomous zones. And all of these, you know, they, they never really, if it ended up growing beyond 100 people, you know, whatever the was, was comfortable, 50 to 100, 150 people, blah, blah, blah. OK, this is not unlike a Galt's Gulch that Ayn Rand would, would uh, you know, theorize um, that, you know, they would just build another one. Because they're floating cities, so you can have a limitless amount. Or they end up you going, you know, like uh, the Prodon X went to, you know, went to Venus uh, to colonize Venus, uh, and and maybe you could colonize elsewhere, asteroids and all this stuff. Okay, so that's kind of the key. Is that I think a gift economy. My opinion, I think a gift economy can work within the Dunbar number. Uh, I think a lot of different things can work very well within the Dunbar number because the gift economy requires or does rely on something. It relies on a person's personal sense of charity. And in, the, in that being so, I think that, you know, it, it requires a really a, a major shift in the way that people think. And I'm not saying there aren't already people that think that way. But that's what it requires. It is because it's so drastically different from the economies that we know today. So if you can find, you know, such and so many people, if you could gather up, you know, 10, 15 people or or a few, you know, more than that, whatever, stick within the Dunbar number that can agree upon a gift economy or, you know, have that mindset that they want that. And that's the thing. You can't force this stuff on people. They have to come to these conclusions that that's how they want things to work. OK, then I think you could create a temporary autonomous zone or a permanent autonomous zone. Doesn't even have to be a floating city. You could do it right now today and you could go off into, you know, this area or whatever. And you could, by and large, treat each other, interact with each other in the means of a gift economy. And it would work. I think it would work largely in part also because of one of the things that I think a gift economy also relies upon is that you have kind of these, you know, this, this trustless system known as your intuition and brain, not something required by, not something created by a computer network that all, you know, that, that will allow you to, to, you know, trust and interact and, and handle the situation and, and all of that, uh, you know, just with your own built-in intuition and the fact that you know these people. And this is something the Dunbar number talks about to where you can have within 15 people, you know, you can really share a whole lot of empathy, but going beyond that, maybe that's not possible. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I think the whole world could use a whole ton more empathy. Okay. <laughs> and I wanted, I, you know, I'd love for it to get there, but if we're talking about getting Liberty right now, uh, you know, th this is this is perhaps a way to go. So, yes, I think that a so in that sense, a gift economy does not rely upon anything remotely like money. 
Uh, could it be a hybrid system? Uh, maybe. I don't know. OK, but, <laughs> but that's up to each person. But a gift economy. So when I say Osiris One didn't have money, that's because it was running off of a gift economy and that economy did not have money. And I, it's theoretical, but it is possible. And it, it is at least the only thing standing against it is the fact that the tribes that still use gift economies uh, are not even to the degree that the Inca were doing are not necessarily like advancing. Is that a way to measure the success of something? Is that a way to measure, uh, you know, whether something is is useful or not probably not because some people could choose to you know stay in a degree of what many would call primitivism so you know you really you've you've got to gauge that upon personal preference okay so but the bottom line is is that i think a gift economy uh, has the potential to work but i think it really it really is something that only works uh with a drastic mindset and with uh you know change in mindset to what people know today and also i think it really only works on a very hyper local level um it is not it is not and eisenstein would disagree but that's where he starts bringing in government that's where he's not an anarchist because i think he admits that you're going to have to have some kind of third party you know control this gifting you know, and that's kind of where it almost feels like communism, too. But I think if you do a, a gift economy on a much smaller scale and a hyper local level, um, it would it could work. So that was my my theory for uh, for the future. And, you know, I, I mentioned Ayn Rand in Galt's Gulch, and I actually I want to quote from one of her books, uh, my favorite book by her, actually, The Fountainhead, where her thought on money. And I think this is really this is really key to understanding a bit of this. And it is, I don't see anything evil. This is her character, Howard Rourke, talking. I don't see anything evil in a desire to make money, but money is only a means to some end. If a man wants it for a personal purpose to invest in his industry, to create, to study, to travel, to enjoy luxury, he's completely moral. But the men who place money first go much beyond that. Personal luxury is a limited endeavor. What they want is ostentation to show, to stun, to entertain, to impress others. They are second-handers. And that's interesting coming from someone that loves capitalism so much. So the point being is that if you can achieve that end without money, then, you know, then what is money if it is just a means to achieve some end? And if your ends, you know, like, like it says, you know, luxury is a limited endeavor. And actually, you know, the, the less one perhaps or the more limited the endeavor, you know, the easier one could could get away with a different type of economy other than a market, uh, necessarily a market uh, economy. And so and what she's talking about with the second handers are and I think this is where a lot of people take real issue with money. And obviously Ayn Rand did, too, is people that that like money for the fact that it they don't want it because it allows them to create or to, uh, you know, or, or to study or to enjoy life. They want it because it gives them power over other people. And I think that's at the heart of it. That's the real issue here is that we want something that doesn't give power over others, because that's what anarchy is all about is eliminating hierarchies. So if technologically the means of production can be had to every person, uh, you don't have to be, you know, a primitivist tribe to be able to, uh, you know, handle a gift economy of sorts, because you can produce a lot of what you need, you know, on your own with, again, you know, say solar or, uh, you know, some kind of like really impressive nuclear technology uh, along with, you know, 3D printing, uh, you know, or whichever. And thus the human services 
that you would otherwise need money to buy, you know, would be the gift of the gift economy. Okay, so so that that's 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 pretty probable. And I think a lot of people would say, you know, well, but what do you do? You know, okay, I I talked about I did the next generation special this week, which I heard was some people's favorite special. Actually, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy made that comment. (laughs) And in that, I mentioned the episode, The Neutral Zone uh, of Star Trek, where uh Picard argues with this guy from like the 20th century who is a, you know, could be easily said to be a capitalist. And Picard says, you know, and this is the guy that's living up to that. What, who, what Ayn Rand was warning about is the person who wants money for power over other human beings. And Picard says, it's like, I don't think you understand, you know, we are beyond this need to collect things. Now, that's a it's an ironic statement because Picard in his very quarters has property. It is not an anti-property statement. A lot of people would say that it is Star Trek promoting communism. It's not true. Uh, Picard has that flute uh, from uh, the inner light. Picard has like various things that he's collected from, uh, arch- uh, you know, archaeological digs. Uh, he has his fish Lexington. He has lots of things. They, they still have property. OK, but what exists is kind of this this the sharing or rent, not a rental economy, but kind of the sharing economy. What exists is not indifferent from what we have today. It's amazing when you think about it. OK, how people so quickly no longer wish to have gigantic VHS or DVD or Blu-ray libraries. They are perfectly OK with the fact that all of their entertainment and artistic enjoyment is done on a server. Somewhere else that they have absolutely no control over. So people really don't. So so this is the thing is that I think Star Trek, I think a lot of people would infer that people, uh, you know, just need to kind of get away from this desire to have a bunch of things when even in Star Trek and even today when people are saying, yeah, people are getting away from that. Not really. It's just shifted how they access it. And if it's shared access, well, then so what? If it's more redundant, then good. Because, I mean, that's that's the one thing that I'd, I'd hope every human would want to keep going is, you know, human art and knowledge being available kind of to all. You know, data wants to be free, right? Information wants to be free. And I guess then the question becomes, you know, well, without it, you know, in a gift economy, why would anyone want to do anything? And really, that comes down to getting very much in touch with your intrinsic motivations. This is what I mean by there, there, there would have to be like this, this really big, uh, you know, mind shift or, you know, in, in the way of thinking. Um, and most people don't act out of, uh, you know, out of intrinsic motivation. I think most people are, you know, totally stuck in this punishments and rewards kind of paradigm. And that's how a lot of these people who want to use money for power uh, instead of self-fulfillment, you know, I, that that's how they get people. Is because, you know, the, the person is, you know, it just they're not acting within their own intrinsic motivations. You know, they're they're not doing what they really want to do. And, you know, I've, I've been so happy in the past to share, uh, you know, some of the talks that the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy has given where she really she she did. You know, she leapt without looking and took the risk of. You know, look, I, I'm not going to do this bullshit anymore. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, I'm going to go into the industry that I'm good at, that I want to do with my talents. And, you know, and I'll take that chance. And she did it and she succeeded. I get to see that success every day, uh, which is a real honor for me. 
Okay. But that's, that's the thing is it's what she wanted, you know, it's what she wanted to do. You know, it was her intrinsic motivation to do that. And I think that could exist in, in various forms of economies. Okay. Is that that's really the shift that has to occur is people have to get into, you have to be in touch with what they really want, not what they want because TV or whatever tells them buy this, buy this, buy this bullshit, buy that bullshit, buy this bullshit, you know? That that's that's the problem. People aren't actually they, they they're they're living a lifestyle obsession. They're not actually in touch with their own real wants and needs. And if they were, I think again that you'd find a, a lot of this stuff can work. And I think that's that's more what Picard was really saying when he said that we've gone we've come out of our infancy. We're no longer concerned with the acquisition of things. It's we're more concerned with developing ourselves and bettering ourselves, which is actually what he says in First Contact. And I wonder what that would look like. And I don't think there's ever been even the smallest group that's really been interested in that. But maybe now there can be. And that's where intentional communities come in. Okay. And maybe you could have a community. Now, granted, just like the Inca, when they dealt with the outside world, they did have some form of exchange. Maybe that's what you would have to do. Okay. To to deal with those people. But within yourself, yeah, maybe a gift economy, maybe these different economies could work if it stays hyper-local enough. So I hope that answers that. Uh, You can always send more questions. I'll be back with more. Got an energy spike. Hold on! Launch. Bombing the Narn back to the Stone Age wasn't enough for you? Then we heard it. The sound of something terrible being born. This is mad. Station 3 to Commander Ivanova. Centauri have launched a full-scale assault. Time is coming on! It's our turn now! Two million tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. A world where empires rise and fall, where dreams are born and die, where war and hatred are challenged by love and faith. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity, it is our last best hope for peace, for victory, for freedom. It is Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Do you still have it? Got it right here. How does this affect System D? I don't know. The message just said it was important. I think we need to find out more about this. Tool of the Week. It is time for Tool of the Week, where I talk about uh, a piece of software or a website or, you know, maybe even some kind of hardware that uh, I find really useful. Sometimes it'll be something terrible. So, But this is my combination of Website of the Week and Software of the Week all getting wrapped up into one. And it's Tool of the Week. And this one, I'm actually going to, uh, I got a, a bit message and I'm going to respond to it with tool of the week. And the bit message was uh, actually, there's a bunch of great questions in it that I'm going to be getting into in the very near episodes of sovereign tech. Um, it was as a tool of the week segment, are there one or more Linux distros you would recommend, particularly if there are new and or lesser known ones beyond Ubuntu and tails? Um, and I will say, actually this guy that sent me the bit message, he also, <laughs> told me he was uh he was on a bbs 
<laughs> the same night. And I was just, oh, holy shit. I mean, talk about a cool cat, you know, <laughs> getting on the B- on BBSs. That's awesome. Uh, anyway, so to answer this uh, and, and to get into this for Tool of the Week, um, it's actually, it's a great question. Uh, and there are other uh, distros that I would actually recommend beyond Ubuntu and Tails. And I'll say the reason I recommend beyond Ubuntu is that as of late, I... I don't know. They're they're going in a direction that I really don't like as far as at the very least, as far as the GUI, as far as the user interface, you know, with uh, um, with Unity. Uh, but also, you know, maybe they have some other business practices like what they've been doing with Amazon that I find uh, questionable. And also Tails, uh, I'm pretty concerned about. And in fact, on Security Now this coming week, do listen to this episode. It's called it's going to be called Detour. And it's about. Uh, how Tor is perhaps no longer anonymous at all. And Steve Gibson is going to talk about that. So you do want to listen to that. Anyway, let's get into some Linux distros that I love. Uh, first off, if you are used to Ubuntu, though, a great way to go. It's called Triskel. I hope I spelled that right. T-R-I, or I hope I said that right. T-R-I-S-Q-U-E-L. There will be a link in the show notes at SovereignTech.com for this. But you can go to Triskel.info to get it. And this is actually based off of, um, it is a spin off of Ubuntu. Okay, so if you're good with Ubuntu, you know, you can get used to this, but it is actually supported by someone we mentioned earlier, Richard Stallman, who is really a real stickler, a real nitpicker as far as things being, you know, being Libra software, you know, free software, open source. He doesn't like the word open source, you know, being floss or FOSS. It's very important to him. So when he puts his stamp of approval on something you know it's the goods. Uh, and Triskel is really good. And it comes with a lot of great software built on. It has LibreOffice. It actually comes with Electrum, the Bitcoin wallet, uh, built into the distro. So uh, Triskel is a great one to look at, especially if you're really new to Linux. Uh, but it's got all the all the right moves. And honestly, Stallman supporting it is, is really good enough for me. Uh, the other one that I would recommend, and it's my personal favorite that I use, is Fedora. And they actually have uh, version 21 is going to be released in the next week or couple of weeks. Uh, so that would be a good time to install that if you are uh, interested. So, uh, yeah, Triskel and Fedora, those are really the only the only directions I would go. There are, you know, if you're looking for something more anonymous, there is Ipredia OS, I-P-R-E-D-I-A OS. And this actually is, it, now while Tails uses Tor, Ipredia OS uses I2P, which is Tor-like. Um, but Ipredia, as far as I know, the version, it's it's up to like version one, but it hasn't been, there hasn't been an update in like a year. So I'm a little concerned. I don't know if it's still in development or not, but Ipredia is one that it's like Tails, but again, it uses I2P and I2P is... Uh, not perhaps not as well developed as Tor, but it's certainly it's not something necessarily that, as I understand it, has U.S. government money behind it, which was a concern for a lot of people uh, with with Tor. And, uh, you know, the, the dev team is pretty solid that was working on I2P. Uh, so, you know, that's something to look into as well. But really, I would stick with with either Triskel, which I think is really exciting, uh, or Fedora. Uh, I mean, uh, there's other ones, OpenSUSE. There's a whole slew that, that still get heavily developed by teams. Um, but 
but sticking with like an Ubuntu spin more or less, uh, or stripped down Ubuntu like that, uh, I think is, is really the way to go. And Fedora is good to learn, especially if you are going to want to use uh, Raspberry Pi, because there is a Fedora for ARM processors that's been developed. And uh, Fedora, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, which is based off of Red Hat and RPM packages. Uh, Fedora is used all over the place. NASA uses it. Uh, I mean, most a lot ton of businesses uses it. It's really a, a very, very... F- famous distro that, no, that not a lot of people use so go that direction in my opinion triskel or fedora there either one is really top notch i personally i love fedora i'll be back with more hey sovereignty yes you sovereign tech listeners i just want a minute of your time look thank you so much as always for listening to the show and taking part in it every week in various ways through your messages and whichever it really means so much to me and here's the point where I let you know that if you enjoy the show, I want you to look in the show notes at SovereignTech.com and you'll find addresses for various cryptos like Bitcoin and NXT that you can donate. Also on the right-hand side of the page are affiliate links and even a way to donate via PayPal, uh, along with links to how you can follow me on social media like Twitter or Google+. Or if you want to be really saucy, you can just follow me on SoundCloud. I assure you, everything you can do for the show really does help and it's much appreciated. Again, thank you so much for listening and for going on this fun little journey with me that is Sovereign Tech. I really, I love all of you. But uh, let's get back to it. We're never going to make it out alive if those blockchain drones get off the ground. I can handle that. You just find us another ride. Get on! Nice moves. When did you learn that? On with you. No guns, no killing. Are the drones taken care of? They are now. Nothing works better than a quick hack. Let's get going. Hack It is time for HackSec, where I talk about issues of hackers and uh, security. And boy, do we have, uh, this is the subject I'm about to broach with you comes due to, uh, an interesting story that has come out of mobile carriers, but is going to rehash an idea, uh, a, a very old idea, uh, on sovereign tech that was discussed, uh, back when the Snowden revelations really first came to four. And so I'm going to get into that, but let's start reading the story. And this is from Android police. Uh, welcome to the latest edition of. What the hell is wrong with carriers? In this installment, we discuss the newest carrier attempt to further monetize customers, that's us, with a service called Digital Turbine Ignite. This service is already being included on a few T-Mobile and Verizon phones, and it allows the carriers to push new apps to your phone without warning. It almost goes without saying users are not happy about this one bit. The app package is called DT underscore Ignite, and its sole purpose is to download and install apps without going through the standard Android package manager. So this is Android. This is shady, but the lack of information provided to users is absolutely unconscionable. So how does digital turbine? And this is coming from Android police, which is hilarious because I mean, these guys aren't, you know, they're not necessarily interested in issues of privacy or whatever. Um, at least not at the government level, right? So how does digital turn, uh, 
turbine rear its ugly head. You get a system update and suddenly Cookie Jam, Drippler and Retail Me Not are on your phone. The apps will vary by carrier and device. Weird, but not the end of the world. You uninstall them and then go on with life. The next time you reboot your phone, though, the apps are back. Ignite keeps reinstalling them. The scenario described above is T-Mobile's implementation of Digital Turbine Ignite on the Note 4. This appears to be the same service that Verizon used to install bloatware apps on the LG G3 a few months ago. Those were uninstallable and didn't come back uh, at the t- at least at the time. So there's apparently some flexibility in how Ignite is implemented. Still, now that we know that it can be used const- to constantly push apps to a device, device, not just during setup, it's much more worrisome. And of course, as a system app, Ignite has plenty of permissions. It also eats into your data cap to download these apps, but it's not clear how much effect that will have in the long term. Most people would assume that that they had some sort of crazy malware infestation if apps kept installing themselves. And that's what many users are calling digital turbine malware. Good on them. I don't know if it's necessary, if it's necessarily malware or maybe more of a malware slash adware combo thing. Whatever it is, it's a really bad idea. Digital turbine doesn't make itself known to the user, and that's probably by design. The company pitches Ignite as a way for carriers to get customized CPI deals by installing apps onto customer devices automatically. The idea of carriers adding apps to a device is nothing new, but they are usually included in the ROM or with Lollipop as standard removable apps. Digital Turbine seems like a step backward and sideways into a different dimension of annoying. The apps don't have to be built into the ROM. Good. However, they can continue reasserting themselves when you get rid of them without any explanation. If you know what's going on, which almost no one will, you can find the Ignite client in the app settings and disable it, thus ending its silent app install binge. It's a system app, so it can't be uninstalled itself without root. You might know how to do this, but most people do not. It doesn't matter. This app qualifies as malware or just a misguided attempt to speed up device updates. Google has a better solution in lollipops. Digital turbine can stop now. Okay. So there is an update to the story too, that, uh, that I'll read real quick that they added and they put at the top. And it is, we've heard from a source close to Digital Turbine that the software is not supposed to reinstall bloat apps after they have been removed by the user. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad they're not supposed to. Once they're gone, they should stay gone, barring a factory reset of the phone, at which point they will reinstall. But again, only once. Digital Turbine was also not able to reproduce this behavior in its own testing on the T-Mobile Note 4, which is where they got the story from uh, that it was tested on. So it's not clear what went wrong for this particular user. The source also made clear that data used by Digital Turbine does not count against user data caps. Now that's that part of the bit, you know, it it, using data and whatever isn't a concern to me. Uh, I mean, if I'm how much data I use on a mobile phone is ridiculous, but perhaps I should reconsider that. Uh, and what I want to theorize with you, what I want to bring to light for you is that, okay, fine. This is just the carriers. This is Verizon and T-Mobile, at least Sprint and others may do this too. Okay. We just don't know about it. Uh, you know, just, just putting their, their bloat ass apps on you, you know, so, so that you use their stuff and, and whatever they get money from advertisers and all this shit, uh, you know, to, to have it on their phone. Okay, fine. Well, it's not fine, but whatever. Okay. Not shocking. But then what if 
organizations like the NSA, CIA, FBI, take your pick, did this. And you didn't know. Because that's the whole key to this story, is that all this stuff gets put on your phone without you knowing. You didn't know about Digital Turbine until somebody like saw It's like, wait a minute, this is weird. I installed this app and it came back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, what is all this about? And so they look into it, they do the teardown and they find it. How many system processes are in Android? And I wouldn't be shocked if it's an iPhone, too, that are actually being pushed on you by governments and you have zero privacy with that device. Zero, you know, it, like a key logger and all this crap. I don't think that's outlandish to to believe. And so my concern is overall, and this is the idea, this is the old idea on Sovereign Tech that I want to repitch to you, which is, and, and this is also in light of the fact that now a lot of a lot of phones, Android phones, and again, every other company I'm sure is soon to follow, are getting uh, dedicated voice processors on the phone so that they can receive you know, voice commands and the microphone can always be on and it doesn't rely upon the software to do that. So it is a constant, you know, we talked about the Amazon echo. It is the Amazon echo on, you know, on steroids on a mobile device. So you, you have these two matters, you know, software that you don't even know, you know, you have no control unless you root it. You don't have control over your device and what it can do, and you can't uninstall this stuff. So it certainly makes a great case for rooting. But then how long until that's not possible anymore? With Exynos chips, they're trying to get rid of that. Uh, you know, you, you take your pick. I mean, it's going to get to the point where people don't want you rooting. I think that's the whole reason. Albeit that Google allows for an unlocking of the bootloader, I think it's interesting that, that a lot of companies are getting away from the micro SD card being a part of the phone. And I think that is to keep it from being so simple to put on custom ROMs and, and root uh, devices. So the, the idea, again, that I want to repitch to you with these in mind is I feel that if one is concerned about their privacy, if one is interested in doing activism against groups like the NSA, against government in general, that not relying on your phone, on your mobile devices is a hell of an idea. OK, uh, last week during listener email, someone asked, you know, how can I go about being anonymous? I recommended using a tablet. I still think that that's more or less true. OK, I'm talking you know, very much about this, just this constant connectedness that maybe that's something that we should get away from, because these these operating systems as they stand were are new, you know, iOS and Android, and they were developed in mind with you not being able to get to the nuts and bolts of it. Unlike the ones we just mentioned, Triskel and Fedora and other PC operating systems. I mean, and it's true, even with Apple. Apple's been closing in, been sandboxing OS X for so long, and the only people that that bothers are the people that want to get into the nitty gritty of their computer, which is where you can keep your you know, this shit from happening so that where you can control your privacy. Now, a person can very readily say, well, how far do you go with this? I mean, Windows 7 probably has a keylogger on it. This probably has a keylogger, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it makes a great case for open source, for Floss, for Libra software. I think I might get away from using the word open source so much. But anyway, it makes a great case for, for, for free software, right? Because you can check the code as long as you know someone's actually taking the time to check the code. But it does. And there's no real, there's no real on the, on the mobile, on mobile devices, other than like CyanogenMod or Replicate, 
uh, replicant, I think is the name of it. You don't really have a whole lot of options to have that total control of your device. And so if you are interested in privacy or if you if you are interested in making it expensive for these organizations to get information about you, then I yeah, I recommend that people get away, you know, from being so reliant and and so heavy on their mobile phones. I mean, I, th- I think I think in, in many ways, you know, our, our privacy is screwed with that in mind. And these things just bring it more to light. The voice, co-pro- you know, the voice coprocessor and, uh, you know, and, and the fact like this digital turbine uh, ignite. But to think that we can't take control of our privacy, I think we certainly can. Or at the very least, we can make it very difficult for someone to infringe, you know, for whoever, whatever group to infringe upon it. And I know someone else is going to say, well, everybody else still has a smartphone. They're still going to hear uh, what you're saying. Well, but at least you have some more options. So it's all up to everyone's own, you know, comfort level. Uh, and, you know, actually, it brings me to another point as well with these app things. Uh, a common question I've been getting a lot into the show is, you know, what can I do right now to really get some serious privacy on my computer and mobile devices? Well, I'll tell you the first thing is install as few apps and, and pieces of software as possible. Become a software minimalist. Like, Really? be a software minimalist use as much as you can that more or less gets pre-installed uh you know and 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 try and use you know uh, uh you know floss foss software whatever term we want to use here open source software as much as possible uh and and look into it and see if it's been checked out if you're concerned about your privacy if you're not concerned about your privacy you know if you're not if you're just interested in having your information be secure and you're not worried about all that and you're not worried about anonymity per se well yes then just go with a chromebook you know <laughs> stick within google's ecosystem and it's incredibly uh, secure for for what it is and that's okay i'm not saying there's anything wrong with you wanting that it's all up to everybody's you know personal preference but if we're going to be working within system d and doing things like intentional communities and whatever i think it's important that people are aware of what actions they can really take right now to get that kind of privacy. Because like I said, I think, especially with intentional communities, I don't know if they can necessarily be so out in the open. I'll be back with more. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Ah, we made it. They're not kidding when they say you're the best, Mr. Sovereign. Oh, Elizabeth, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, really? Really? Why don't I show you? Right here? Out in the woods? On the bike? Elizabeth, I can rise to any, any occasion. Oh, Brian. The Climax. You know, I just I want to make a, a quick comment on, on the last segment there that I didn't get to get out because uh, the climax is where I get to talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. And uh, I am going to get into a topic this week in just a moment. But I want to make this very clear that if whatever device you have, if it has a SIM card in it, you do not have control of that device. OK, the SIM card gives whatever carrier you're connected to. That's why I say tablets still better than a smartphone gives whatever carrier you're connected to complete ability to just kill 
the device to reboot it, to do all, all kinds of crap. And there's not a whole lot you can do about that. So again, when I say you want to get away Okay, from, you know, if you want control of your devices, you really will never have complete control of your smartphone. And that's why I've never done a special about how to really secure your smartphone. I've only talked about tablets, which if your tablet has has a SIM card in it, same problem. Okay, but tablets without SIM cards and, of course, you know, computers are obviously the best way to go because computers uh, up until pretty recently were still, you know, you're still able to really have a good degree of control. Some people will talk about how, you know, wake on land and all this stuff and whatever. That's another topic for another time. But it is maybe a good practice to at least get used to relying more upon your laptop for your communications or your tablet than your smartphone. So regardless Let's get into a topic. Some pretty disturbing stories have have come out of as late out of the liberty movement, out of some people that are relatively famous in or very famous, I should say, in the liberty movement. And uh, it's funny because I get a lot of shit for my uh, my what would be described as anti-gun uh, thoughts. And I'm again, I'm not look, folks, I'm not anti-gun. OK, I I mean, I'm not like I want I don't want to lay down a law against people owning guns. I am not a fan of guns. I don't think that they should have a place other than perhaps, uh, you know, for hunting or if you live in Alaska and you are regularly attacked by bears or whatever, then, of course, yes, I get it. I understand it at that point. But I don't think they have a place in human interaction, in interaction between persons. I don't think they have a place. I think they, if, if anything, they just aggravate, you know, situations and that they that their use with training, the same amount of training that is required of the use of a gun. That same amount of training could be had to where you don't have to, uh, you know, be lethal in the use of your force. I have no problem uh, with self-defense. So I get a lot of shit for that. You know, again, I'm not saying I don't want to pass any kind of law. I'm just talking about ideology. That's all I'm talking about. Now, folks, this what I'm about to say, it's not about attacking the individuals. I'm definitely attacking the ideas. I'm attacking the ideologies. Okay, and who this is, is completely unimportant. It's the ideologies that matter. But a couple of the people that are described in this would be Chris Cantwell, Jeff Berwick, others. So I'm not afraid to say the names. I'm just saying that's not important. It's about the ideologies. And what I'm about to describe is not some kind of insider information. This is all stuff that is bragged about on blog posts, uh, podcasts, and elsewhere. It's all very open information. There's no secrets here. And it's funny because what I say is, is that, look, you know, here's my problem is that in the liberty movement, I'm not seeing because a lot of people say, well, uh, all kinds of libertarians have guns and they never use them against anybody else, you know, uh, unwarranted or they, you know, they they uh, they have proper control of all this stuff. And, and I keep hearing that people keep telling me that. But then I see videos where, you know, they get they get broadcast on international television where I see libertarians muzzle swiping entire towns. Or I hear stories. I, or I see, you know, things on Facebook or or I read blog posts about people who, uh, you know, apparently a private deal went sour. Gulch, gulch, chili. And so to fix the private deal. 
a SWAT team, a, a, a Merc, a mercenary team gets hired to go in. A private army gets hired. And then I hear, I read, I read a lot of people saying or clicking like on something to the effect of on Veterans Day. I hereby support all the private troops on planet Earth. I do not support the government troops, but private troops, they are okay. Or, or, uh, there is uh, arguments between people of means in the liberty movement where, hey, buddy, you bring your posse to the Cayman Island because I'm bringing mine and we're going to do this, you know, okay corral style. Or perhaps somebody gets a phone call. They get a, a prank phone call that is, well, perhaps it's more than a prank, uh, but a phone call where they find out where this, this call goes something to the effect of, look, dad, uh, this is your son. They've kidnapped me. You got to wire them this amount of money and all this stuff, which I grant you, that's a very serious threat to hear that your son perhaps is in danger. But the person who gets this phone call realizes, well, okay, that's not my son. And this call is bullshit. This is no different than the Nigerian prince stories. So what does this anarchist, this liberty-minded person decide to do in this situation? This person that has such grand control over the, you know, what they consider, uh, you know, the proper use of force. This person who, who has internalized the non-aggression principle against somebody who just you know, again, you've you've recognized that, OK, this phone calls bullshit. What do you do? You supposedly get your network in motion and thousands of people suddenly all around the world, kind of like Batman Inc. or something or like a Justice League goes to hunt down this person that made a phone call. Let, let me be clear on this. That the, it was assessed very quickly, undoubtedly, that no one's in danger and that this was just one of those bullshit Nigerian prince things. And you apparently get thousands of people, an army of assassins to go after somebody. And then two hours later, you get on YouTube and say three words, peace, love, anarchy. Are you serious? Really? Don't go telling me about peace, love, and anarchy when you are hiring private armies. Not once, not twice, three times. The third time was more or less a threat. When I say... Because this is the other thing I get heat for. When I say the non-aggression principle doesn't go far enough. Because all it is, is a rule for a bunch of people who just have this itch to fire off some guns and are just waiting for that opportunity. Boy, if this doesn't prove the case, these are true stories I'm telling you. They're just dying. They're just waiting to, when can I start using my force because I've had to deal with the trauma of the government and parents forcing their bullshit on me on my whole life. I'm going to get some vengeance. I'm going to express my traumas, baby. Yes, I'm terrified of you people having guns. You haven't grown. If you had grown, 
Maybe you'd want to talk about things first. The whole thing with the liberty movement is that we're logical. We're hyper-logical human beings. Where is the logic in this? And in fact, boy, how are those contracts working out for you when you have to hire a mercenary team to go solve your problem in Galt's Gulch, Chile? I was attracted as a veteran of the United States Army. I was attracted to the ideas of liberty because it said, this isn't how you have to do business anymore. And I wrapped the ideas of anarchy and liberty around me, and I was comforted that other people said, no, we're not going to use coer- we're not going to, you know, use coercive force. Yes, I know. It's not the initiation of coercive force, but this is the whole idea was like, look, no, the, the market will solve it. We'll figure all this stuff out. The whole thing, the whole idea behind anarchy was getting away from the idea of fiefdoms. And folks, fiefdoms is just one guy sitting at the top that has an army underneath him that can t- that can force other people what to do. And that's exactly what's been created here in by supposedly these really, you know, uh, ethical, moral people. These are not individualistic actions. The, 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 the very notion of an army, and I know there's so many people that think that, oh, no, 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 armies, armies can be had privately and all that. No, no. The very notion of an army is anti-freedom because it is eliminating the very notion of individual voluntary interactions. Individual interactions. Forget about the voluntary part. Individual interactions. These aren't individual. You hired a whole shit ton of people. This is madness. It's boys with toys. When, uh, you know, a lot of people that wave a red and black flag, when they get worried, they said, look, they say, you don't understand. I know there's these capitalists out there that say that they're anarchists. But believe me, if there were no government, when... When they get turned loose, they're going to start offing each other en masse. It's just going to end up being, you know, uh, you know, feudalism, Brittany all over again. And guess what? A lot of you ANCAPs, you just proved all of them right. That without government, all you're going to do is sit on the top of the pyramid of power instead of level it. I thought we wanted to end gangs, not create our own. I don't know what movement I'm in. Especially because, like I always say with a lot of people, well, that's just one person's ideas. Just like me. These are just my ideas. You can write me off as nuts. That's fine. But it's not just one person's ideas. Because thousands of people either a enacted, you know, and worked with this person or thousands of people will click like on all of these people. It's not just one person will click like on all these people when they start saying, yeah, I used force, baby. I got him. I was the bully this time. So it's not just one person. It's a lot of people agreeing with the use 
of force and with no discussion whatsoever. And that's the thing. At the very least, tell me, well, I tried to solve it this way. And that never comes up. I know not everybody agrees with me that I don't believe in the use of lethal force. I understand that. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with, you know, pretty much anarchists coming out as kings, acting no different than kings. They are not, they're not putting their principles into play and they are famous and they are quote unquote loved and they are supported by the bulk of the movement. What the fuck? Stop telling me I'm nuts. Stop telling me it's unreasonable for me to be afraid. Stop telling me, well, in this town, lots of people walk around with guns and nobody ever gets hurt. Well, that's until a private deal falls through. That's until somebody makes a phone call. And please, please, I know how serious it is to insult somebody's family. Please understand. That on this show, I regularly insult the institution of family. I am not directly insulting your family. Please don't come after me with guns. Yes, I'm indirectly insulting your family. (laughs) But I'm just talking. I'm just talking. This is crazy. Do I have an answer to all this? Be aware. Stop supporting. So many of these people... You know, we did that quote earlier from Ayn Rand. These people just want to impress. They want to show off, you know, in effort to have power over you. Stop feeding the egos. Stop feeding the hierarchies because we're never going to get rid of them if we keep enforcing or keep reinforcing them with all the little actions we do. And start speaking up. And saying, no, in the liberty movement, it's a movement of peace, and we're not going to deal with our problems by hiring armies or mercenary teams. Could we do that? Would that be all right? I'd like to see it. I'd feel a whole hell of a lot better. Anyway... I'm sure I'll get a bunch of heat for that, but guess what? I won't send a network of people after you! Carpe Lucem, everybody. Hopefully, I'll see you on the other side. Hopefully, I'll be alive next week. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.